Well, church family, ready to worship the Lord through the study of his word? Let's do that then. Let's step into his word. If you'll grab your Bible or your phone and let's head to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4 this morning, church family. And we're going to be in verses 7 through 11 today. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, just let us know. Raise a hand and we'll be glad to share a copy of the word. And, and there's a note page that you received in the bulletin that you were given. And uh, if you didn't get a note page, raise your hand as well, and we'll supply you with one of those. And this morning, church family, we continue our Exiles study series, which has us working week by week through the book of First Peter. And if you look on that note page, you're going to notice that the title of our study this morning is Arm Yourselves for Battle, Part 2. Now, the fact that there is a Part 2 informs us that there must have been a Hey, part one, that's right. In fact, there was, there is a part one. And if you were with us last time, you were here for part one. We opened up our Bibles and we took a look at the first six verses of 1 Peter 4. First century Christians in Asia Minor were living and dying for their love of Jesus at the hands of a hostile to Jesus, hostile to God culture. Calling Jesus your Lord and your Savior in the first century could cost you your life. In fact, by the way, just as a sidebar, our culture is becoming almost by the day increasingly hostile, as you know, to the claims of Jesus and the God of the Bible. Though though outright persecution is really not what we're seeing in our moment, and we're thankful for that, we're heading in these directions that the first century Christians that Peter was writing to were actually living in. So for us, even now, the study of First Peter is, is somewhat preemptive preparation for what we can expect to eventually happen in our own culture if things continue the way that they are going right now. So this is valuable ground for us to be in. So Peter is writing these, first, these, these persecuted Christians who are in a, in really in the spiritual fight of their lives writing to equip them for the battle, writing to give them practical ways to arm themselves for the spiritual war that they are in. In fact, Peter actually uses warfare language. If you remember from last time, in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, what are the next two words? Arm yourselves. That's, That's warfare language. And then if you are with us, you remember that Peter proceeds to supply us, Holy Spirit inspired, with no less than five practical pieces of spiritual armor for this battle, this war that we are in. And I've listed those again for you, those first five that we looked at last time in case you weren't with us, armor for the fight of our lives. Now, we're not going to walk through all of what we talked about last time, but just by way of a refresher, the first of these pieces of armor, Peter would say, hey, think the way that Jesus thinks. Arm yourself with that for the fight. Verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Jesus died knowing that with his death came triumph over sin and death and the grave. He was going to be victorious. He was going to triumph. He knew that before he ever went to the cross. Any Christian facing persecution or death 
for Jesus' sake, needs to be armed with his way of thinking. Death means victory. My war with sin is over forever. Verse 1. Arm yourself with that truth, Peter would say. Second, know what God says and then what? Do it, right? Do what God says. Verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, the rest of the days that God gives you on earth, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. A Christian walking in obedience to God's expressed will, as found in his written word, oh man, he makes a powerful opponent in this spiritual battle. Third, say, I've sinned enough and actually mean it when you say it. And that's verses 3 and 4. For the time that is past suffices. It's enough for doing what the unbelievers want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, they persecute you because you don't do what they're doing. We called ourselves out rather strongly last time we were together talking about just the the, the place that sin holds in our life and the need to be done with it. Acknowledging that known sin in our lives that we don't address, man, that plays right into the hand of our enemy. So I've sinned enough, and I'm not going to do that anymore by God's grace and help. Fourth, Peter assures these embattled Christian warriors that even though it might look like their persecutors are winning and are going to win, they aren't. And the Christian can arm themselves with that truth, verse 5, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God never forgets the wounds of his people. Do you believe that? He never forgets our wounds. And he never forgets those who wounded his people. And that's really verse 5. That's good to know. Arm yourself with that. And then comes the fifth truth, verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Peter says they may kill your body, Christian. You may die for Jesus' sake physically, but they can never kill you, the real you. The you that Jesus bought with his life. He lives in you. You are going to live. Five practical pieces of truth. Armor for the fight. But Peter's not done. Which is why there's a part two this morning. In verses 7 through 11, Peter continues his, his train of thought. And he supplies us, fellow Christian, with five additional pieces of spiritual armor for the battle of our lives. Now this is new ground for us. Verses 7 through 11. So allow me to read this section for us. And you follow along in your Bible. We'll put it up on the screen for you as well. And so Peter is still rolling with this. This arm yourselves mindset. That he expresses in verse 1. And here's what he says in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. For the sake of your prayers, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, 
Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And we all say, Amen. 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 So Peter says, here's five more ways to arm yourselves. And we've laid those out for you there on your note page. Live like Jesus is coming back when? Today. Because he could, right? He might come back today. Seven, practice stretchy love. What's stretchy love? Well, we're going to see about that. Practice stranger love as well. What is that? Well, we're going to see what that is. Put your gift to full use as a part of arming yourself for the battle. What does that mean? Well, we're going to talk about that. And then, lastly, do all of this for the what? The glory of one. The glory of one. Five more ways to arm ourselves for the fight. So let's go back up now to verse 7 and take a closer look at each one of these. Live like Jesus is coming today because he might come today. Do you believe that, church? Wow, that was marginally enthusiastic. Do you believe that Jesus could come back today? Yeah, you do believe that? Really believe that? You really believe that Jesus is coming back and that it might be while we're gathered here. Do you really believe that? It's one of the most prevalent, hope-filled themes in all of Scripture, isn't it? I'm so glad that you believe that. Jesus said on the night before he went to the cross, John chapter 14, verse 3, I must go away, but I will what? I will come again. I will come again and take you to be with me. I am coming back. And Peter was there that night in the upper room. He heard Jesus say that. In Acts chapter 1 verse 11, when Jesus ascends into heaven, angels uh, were looking on. And when everybody's looking up as Jesus ascends into heaven, Peter being among that group, the angels say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is coming back. You believe that? In Revelation 22, 20, the risen and glorified Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. And we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, right? Yeah. The Apostle Paul takes a tight hold on this truth when he says in Philippians 3 verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says he's coming back. We're waiting for him right now. And in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, Paul writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Jesus is coming back and he won't be silent when he comes. And in 1 Corinthians 15.52, Paul tells us that when this happens, it's going to happen 
in the twinkling of an eye. In the twinkling of an eye. How fast is the twinkle of an eye? That's pretty quick, isn't it? No warning. It's just going to happen. James will write to persecuted Christians in James 5, 7, and 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Establish your hearts. In other words, be living like you expect Jesus at any moment. For the coming of the Lord, what are the last three words? Is at hand. Imminent. It could happen right this moment. Peter says in verse 7, the end of all things is what? It's at hand. It's at hand. His way of saying, don't forget, Christian, Jesus could come back at any moment. Peter's thinking about the return of his Lord. The end of all things is at hand. He could come back right this moment. But this was written 2,000 years ago, we say. We could think that Peter's timing might be off just a little bit. Now, that would be true if Peter was speaking in terms of chronological time. But he's not talking that way. And we know he's not talking that way because of the Greek word that he uses for end in verse 7. He uses the word telos. And this is a word that is never used in the Bible of chronological time, chronological ending or finishing uh, within the scope of time. You would not use this word if you wanted to say, for example, the sale ends tomorrow. You wouldn't use the word telos. There's another Greek word if that's what you want to say. Telos always carries with it the idea of something being consummated, a goal being achieved, a a result being attained, a, a purpose being realized. And in this case, an era or an age is going to come to an end, Peter says. When Jesus came into the world at the first Christmas, the human race entered into an era that the Bible calls the last days. It sounds like a short period of time to us, but it has actually lasted now for 2,000 years. But it's called the last days. Jesus, when he came the first time, ushered in a new era, a new age, not of chronological time, but of salvation time, redemption time. And we don't know how long this period of time is going to last. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews 1 verse 2. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by who? By his son, Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things. When Jesus came at the first Christmas, lived a perfectly sinless life as God in the flesh and died on the cross, he put an end to an era and he inaugurated a new era. He put an end to ceremonial rituals and animal sacrifices and life lived under the law as a way for sinners to relate to God. And he initiated a new age. A new era we call the age of grace. Jesus tore through the veil. Do you remember on the cross? When he died, he tore through the veil and he inaugurated a new way for anyone to have a personal relationship with God. Not by works, not by ritual, but by grace through faith, by, by believing in his work, 
his death on the cross and his victory over the grave at his resurrection. That era, that age of the cross and the resurrection and forgiveness of sin, he began it when he came. Jesus brought that age of grace and now we're in these last days. And we don't know how long that's going to last. Because God is loving, because he is gracious, these days have lasted 2,000 years. We're so grateful that they have lasted that long, right? I'm grateful. I'm saved because they've lasted this long. But they could be brought to a close at any moment with the return of Jesus. God has purposely given every generation from the cross up to this moment the gift of hope-filled expectancy and imminency. The end of all things is what? At hand, Peter says. Peter says today could be the day that Jesus comes back. Everything that needs to have happened in God's salvation by grace timetable, it's happened. The next things that happen in God's plan are going to be set in motion by the return of the Lord Jesus. What things, we ask? Well, everything written in the book of Revelation, for sure. Jesus' kingdom on earth, final judgment, and then on into a glorious eternity with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit where every moment is better than the one that came before it. Amen? That's all going to happen. And it all gets kicked off by the return of our Savior. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. What's the next word? Therefore, Now, remember what we said last week about this word. Every time as a Bible student, you see the word therefore in a verse, what are you going to ask? What's the therefore, therefore? It's always going to point you backwards, right? So Jesus might come back today, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your your prayers. Persecuted brother, persecuted sister, Jesus could walk in on you at any moment, therefore be living right now like you know that and believe it. That's what Peter's saying. Arm yourselves with that. Now that's some great warfare advice. We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to be ashamed because we've become entangled in some sin in some way when our commander in chief comes into our camp unannounced and he comes unannounced, doesn't he? In a twinkle of an eye, he comes. Arm yourselves with the imminent at any moment awareness that your savior could come and be living so that you're not surprised by that. The Apostle John has exactly the same thought as Peter when he writes these words. 1 John 2, verse 28. And now, little children, writing to brothers and sisters in Christ, abide in him so that when he appears, when he comes back, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. He's the righteous, holy God. Live like you're going to meet him today. Be living like that because he just might come today. Are you following Peter's thought? 
An unbelieving, God-rejecting, Jesus-dismissing culture ignores where we are in redemptive history. It doesn't care that it's the last days. It doesn't care. But a Christian who wants to win the spiritual firefights of his or her life must never think like that. Jesus' return is imminent, and that serves to make us more serious-minded and self-disciplined, self-controlled, thinking and living like Jesus would have us think and live so that we're not embarrassed or ashamed when he arrives. Arm yourselves with this kind of thinking. And Peter refers to our prayer life in verse 7. Did you notice that? Because that's where the health of our spiritual life, our relationship with God, can easily be measured at any moment. Our prayer life. When we're running hard after our Lord, in obedience, we're in the word, seeking to honor our Savior by the way we're living in our thoughts, our words, our actions, our relationships. Man, our prayer life, when that's happening, our prayer life has vitality. It's real, and we want to be communicating, talking to our God, and he relating back to us. When we're not pursuing godliness, the first place it's going to show up is where? Our prayer life. You just think about your own. Christian life, how it works for you. It's a great barometer of our spiritual health, this thing we call prayer. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, for the sake of your relationship with your God. You don't want to be ashamed. Be confident when your commander arrives. Someone once asked the great reformer, Martin Luther, who lived in the 1500s, what he would do if he knew that today was the day that Jesus was coming back. And Luther replied, well, I think I'll plant a tree and pay my taxes. Now, what was Luther saying? Jesus could come back today. And if he came back today, what would you do, Martin? And he says, well, I think I'll plant a tree. I'll pay my taxes. Why did he say that? Because he was living for his Lord in such a way that he didn't need to be ashamed. He didn't need to somehow scramble and pull his Christian life together because he knew the commander was coming to the the camp. You follow that? We ought to be able to say that. Can you say that today, brother? Could you say that, sister? I'll plant a tree. I'll pay my taxes. Jesus might come today. I hope you would be able to say that. I hope I could say that. Because if we can, it means we've armed ourselves for the battle. Then if you flip that little note page over, Peter next says in verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. It's a well-known verse. Another way to be armored up, Peter says, practice stretchy love now what is stretchy love well we'll get to that in a second but first notice that he says above all peter prioritizes his list of 10 pieces of spiritual armor for the battle and he says this one is first above all now why it's not first in his list i don't know i have no idea why it isn't up there at verse one we'll just have to ask peter about that someday right 
For now, we'll just let it sit. But we don't have to wonder why he says love is first. Because Jesus said that, didn't he? Jesus said love is the, is the first thing. And he says that over and over and over. And Peter, he gets it because he heard it from his Lord. He was there the day that Jesus was asked the question, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? What's the greatest of all the commandments that come from God? And Jesus says this in Mark chapter 12, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. Love God with all of you. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Peter heard this from Jesus. That's why he calls it the first. Jesus says, love God, love others, and you're going to keep all of the other laws that God has given automatically. And the kind of love that Jesus has in mind here, we've talked about this so many times together, is that self-giving kind of love for the good and for the joy of another The one loving is prepared to give themselves for the sake of another person. God loved us that way with that self-giving love, giving us Jesus Christ to pay our sin debt. We celebrated that a moment ago around the table. Love did that for us, self-giving love. And we say, oh, thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And we are to love like that. If Christian relationships are truly Christian, they have this same desire, selfless loving for other people, especially believers, for their joy, for their good. It's the love of Jesus being reproduced in the life of the Christian, which then gets reproduced in the life of a church, which impacts the community that it's in. As sons and daughters of God, we love because it's God's nature to love. And we own him in our heart. Now, what I appreciate about verse 8 is that it's so honest. It's just real. Peter says, keep loving one another. How? Earnestly. Keep loving. Keep loving. That, that suggests to me that, that you loving me and me loving you, well, that's not an automatic. That doesn't just just automatically happen. In fact, it could be very difficult for you to love me at times or me to love you at times. And Peter, he adds the word earnestly. Maybe your version says fervently. Now, this is an athletic term, church family. It comes right out of athletic competition. It pictures an athlete running down a track, straining with every muscle, straining like crazy with every muscle, taut and and, and charging and working to the max. And what Peter is getting at is is that we can all love kind of in a short term way. We can have our splash and dash moments of love, but loving the same people for a long period of time, that's a strain. That's not easy. That's a lot harder. uh, Teresa, can you change that slide? I don't want that guy looking over my shoulder anymore. He's pretty intimidating. (laughs) 
Loving the same people over the long term, that's a strain. That's hard. It reminds me of the book by John Ortberg titled, Everyone is Normal Until You Get to Know Them. And that is so true, isn't it? So true. To be in relationship with other Christians is to be forced to persevere earnestly, fervently, to strain to love people that aren't like me. Over time, those differences, they wear on us, becoming annoying. People become annoying. They become exasperating. So much so that sometimes folks in a church, sadly, they'll leave a church and they'll go down the street to the next church hoping that the people in that church won't be so annoying. Only when they get into that church, guess what they discover? They're annoying. Just like the people at the other church were annoying, right? It's hard to love people over the long haul. Above all, strain to love each other With all you've got, Peter says, since love, what's the next word? Covers a multitude of sins. Now that last phrase is the armor for the fight. It's the key to any long-term relationship, whether we're talking about a a friendship or marriage or a family relationship or a, a church relationship that we have. The kind of love that God births in Christians through Jesus is stretchy love. And that's where this idea comes from. The word for covers that Peter uses here has the sense of stretching and covering over, really stretching yourself to cover over, in this case, the sin that someone else has committed against you. And that's what, Paul, that's what Peter is thinking about, self-giving love stretches to cover those emotions that well up within us when we have been hurt or insulted or used or rejected or treated unkindly or or been misjudged or misrepresented or sinned against. Peter says, let your love stretch over, cover many sins that might come against you that could possibly damage or destroy your relationship with a brother or sister in your shared community. Are you following Peter's thought here? Stretch over that. Satan's going to try to use all of those hurts to divide and discourage and isolate and weaken you, which then weakens your church, and you become a less effective warrior. Exercise stretchy love. Don't give him that chance. Armor for the fight, right? Armor for the fight. Now, let me, let me give you, a, a, this is a very simple, very basic kind of object lesson. Sometimes they're the very best object lessons. So here we have a rubber band, and, and, and the rubber band represents love. And it's, 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 it, it, it flexes and it moves. And so let's imagine that we, we enter into a relationship with somebody in our church family, and, and we, we like them. We like these people. We like them because they're cool, and they think like we think, and and they have the same values, and they're raising their kids the same way, and they have the same doctrinal kind of thoughts that we have, and so our love is is easy and it works. And then a little bit of time passes, and we go over to their house, and the conversation gets deeper. We have dinner together, and suddenly they unveil that they have a doctrinal belief that 
is different from ours. Hey, I don't like that. They are different. And then the relationship goes on. You, you flex because you're going to cover that. Okay, all right, I'm not going to die on that hill. And then a little more time goes by, and guess what? They hurt you. And now what do you have to do? You have to stretch your love a little bit more. You have to be willing to say, okay, I get it. I value the relationship, so I'm going to stretch my love over that. And then more time happens, and then before you know it, it looks like this. But the relationship is still intact. Why? Because it's true love. It's, it's stretchy love. You're exercising stretchy love. You are covering the sin that could destroy the relationship. Now, church family, how much stretch did God have to do to cover the sin in your life? All the way from hand to hand on the cross, right? Yeah. And God is saying, if I stretched my love for you like that, surely you can stretch your love for your brother or sister who's hurt you. Right? You can forgive them. And that's what Peter is thinking here. He's saying, above all, strain to love each other with all you've got since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, Peter didn't come up with this stretchy love idea on his own. One day, you might remember this moment, Peter comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus how often he should forgive someone who has hurt him. You remember this moment? Yeah? The accepted standard taught by the rabbis of Peter's day was forgive that person three times, and then after that, you can let them have it. Right? That was the thought. And so Peter, being very generous, very magnanimous, very loving, goes up to Jesus and he says, how, how many times should I forgive somebody who hurt me? Do I forgive them seven times? More than twice as many as the rabbis are teaching? Isn't that a big-hearted love? What does Jesus say? Matthew 18. <laughs> Not seven times, Peter. No, 70 times seven. 490 times, essentially, as many times as you must in order to preserve the bonds of the relationship. Stretchy love. This morning, are you perhaps disillusioned with your Christian brother or sister here at IBC? They've, they've hurt you. They're testing the relationship. They've strained it. And you're working hard to cover right now. Or, or perhaps you're in this church and, and, man, not everybody is your cup of tea. And, and it's hard they don't all think like I think and do what I do. If you're in that place right now, I would say great. Great. You're in the perfect place to arm yourself for the fight and step into real, authentic community by exercising stretchy love. Stretchy love. 490 times kind of love, refusing to give in to those urges that, that would come into your heart to hold a grudge or nurse a bitterness or, or keep an offense or just run away, find a new church. You're in a great place to test this piece of armor out.
Above all, strain to love each other with all you've got since love covers. It stretches and hides a multitude of sins. That's great warfare advice. And then another piece of armor that Peter offers his persecuted readers and us for the fight, practice generous stranger love. Stranger love being in quotations. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. We're going to call this stranger love because that's the literal rendering of the Greek word that Peter uses for hospitality. It means love to strangers. Love to strangers. Stranger love. Arm yourselves with a love for strangers without complaining about how it has inconvenienced you or how much it's going to cost you. Without grumbling. Love the stranger that comes across your path. Peter is countering the tendency that we fight all the time, church family, to love the people that are in our circles. And he's saying you need to love those who are outside your circle as well. Without grumbling. Now, this is a good Samaritan kind of love. Remember that guy Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 10 in that story he told? He chose to care for someone vastly different from himself at cost to himself in both time and in money. Love and compassion opened up his heart and opened up his wallet at the same time. When we hear the word hospitality, we usually think of opening up our home to guests who come. And those guests are usually the people we've invited, right? The people we like. But this is much bigger than that. It can include our homes and hospitality in that way, but it's way bigger than that. And Peter adds, exercise stranger love and do it without what? Grumbling. Now, why does he have to say that? Why does he have to say that? Because we, we grumble. We grumble. It's expensive. I don't know that person. It's time consuming. I don't want to do that. I don't have the time. I don't, there's nothing going to come back to me. And we grumble, grumble, grumble. Man, that's expensive. That cost me a lot. It's messing with my schedule big time. I don't like it. Stranger love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, do you know the name? Yeah. He was a pastor in World War II Germany, executed by Hitler's personal order, I think three weeks before Hitler committed suicide. He ordered the death of Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer writes in his book, Life Together, these words. We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. He's talking about stranger love, isn't he? God will be constantly crossing our path and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and needs. If we pass them by, we pass by the visible sign of the cross. Did Did you see that? 
we pass by the visible sign of the cross raised in our path to show us that not our way, but God's way must be done. We must not spare our hand when it can perform a service. We must not assume that our schedule is our own to manage, but allow it to be arranged by God. What's Bonhoeffer talking about? Stranger love. Stranger love. Are you convicted by this quote? I'll tell you, it convicts me, especially that line there. We pass by the visible sign of the cross. That stranger is the cross to me. At the risk of adding a little more conviction, do you recall the words of Hebrews 13, verses 1 and 2? Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show what? Hospitality to strangers. That's the thought. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now we all, if we've been a Christian for very long, we've, we've, we've been down this verse. We, we know about this verse. But, but we often misunderstand this verse. The writer's not telling us that we might be tending to an angel if we tend to a stranger. And then that becomes the motivation. Oh, I don't want to miss that. I could be tending to a, an angel. That's the wrong thought. No, he's simply telling us we never know how far-reaching an act of kindness or assistance rendered without complaint or grumbling to a stranger, how far that could reach. It could reach the residence of heaven. Don't miss the opportunity. Arm yourselves. Jesus could come back today, practice stretchy love and stranger love, and then practice your serve using your spiritual gift. That God has given to you. It's verses 10 and 11. Another piece of armor. As each has received a gift, use it to what? Serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, church family, there is so much in these two verses that we are, we're simply not going to have time to do them to do them justice. And so what I hope to do is to come back to these two verses the next time we're together and and we'll just unpack these two. So we don't have to do that all here in this moment. But I do want you to hear what Peter is saying. Every genuine follower of Jesus, if you have given your life to Jesus Christ in saving faith, the moment that that happened, the scriptures tell us that you were given a gift by the Holy Spirit, a spiritual gift. Do you believe that truth? I hope you do because it's true. You've been given a gift. At that moment, you were given that gift. And that gift, that spiritual gift, was given to you so that you could serve who? The church. And the church is its people. That gift was given to you so you could serve Jesus' church. It, it, it's, it's a blessing to you to use the gift, but the gift is not for you. The gift is for other people. Peter says, arm yourselves for the fight. As each has received a gift, what's the next two words? Use it. Use it, right? There it is. Use it. That's a command, is it not? Use the gift that God gave you to serve others in your church family. It's not for you. It's for the benefit of everybody else, your brothers and sisters. 
for now, we're going to just kind of leave that right there with a challenge. Use your gift. But I do want to say this. If you don't use your gift, and some of us are saying, I don't even know the first thing about spiritual gifts. I don't have a clue. I've never been taught about this. That's fine. That's great. We're going to get there next time we're together. Lord willing, we'll do that. But I would just say this. If you have been given a spiritual gift, Christian, and you are not using it, that's the same as being a soldier in an army and having an incredible gun, and it's big, and it packs a devastating punch, and, and it's intimidating as all get out, but you never fire the gun in battle, not even one time. Our enemy loves it when the Christian doesn't fire the gun doesn't use the gift it helps his cause it hurts our commander's cause it weakens the work of the church and the end because it weakens the work of the church it weakens us when we're not using our gifts Peter says use your gift you were saved by grace and saved to grace others with your gift don't fail to use your gift and then he closes all of this out with the motivation for everything that we've been talking about. He makes it the 10th suggestion for arming ourselves. Use your gift, your spiritual gift, never for your own glory, never for your own praise. At the end of verse 11, in order that in everything God may be what, church? Glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do all for the glory of one. God. One. Do it all for him. That's the tenth piece of armor. Church family, why are you here today at IBC? Why? To glorify God. Why are you here today, church? To glorify God. Why is Idlewild Bible Church in Idlewild? To glorify God. Why is, why, why is the church in the world? To glorify God. It's all about that, isn't it? You and I are all about that. What's the goal in the end of everything that we are doing in Jesus? The glory of God. That God would be glorified. That God would be glorified through Jesus Christ. Through what Jesus has accomplished in us by his death and his resurrection. John 17, verse 4, Jesus said on the night before he was crucified, he said, I glorified you, Father, on the earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Jesus' passion was the glory of the Father. He knew what his death on the cross and his resurrection would accomplish. A mighty army redeemed souls from all across the ages, raised up for the glory of God. For the glory of God. When we know that that's what drove the heart of Jesus, the glory of God, how can that not be our motivation for everything we do inside and outside the church on Sundays and, and the other six days of the week? How can that not be the goal? The glory of God. Paul will say it this way, 1 Corinthians ten thirty one. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God 
He'll say the same thing differently in Ephesians 3.21. To him, that is to God the Father, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. For how long? Forever and ever. Amen. Paul couldn't resist an amen at the end of that statement. What does amen mean? Let it be so. Let it be so. The glory of God, it's all about that. Let it be so. And Peter can't resist that either, can he? How does he, how does he say it? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let it be so. Let it be so. Now, church family, if we step back from verses 1 through 11 of chapter 4, they are not just great truths that arm us for the fight that we are in every day as a Christian. They're actually a great summary of what the Christian life should look like when we're living it all out for Jesus. One of the best summaries I think you'll find anywhere in the Bible for what a sold-out Christian looks like. Think about this for just a moment. We'll wrap up with this. What does a sold-out Christian do? And how do they think? Well, they think the way Jesus thinks. They do what God says. They say no to sin. They trust God to right the wrongs done to them. They believe him to keep his promises. They live like Jesus is coming today. They stretch their love over their brothers' and sisters' failures. They love on the stranger generously. They use their gift. They don't waste it. And they do it all for the glory of God. That is a great description of the Christian who's living all out for Jesus. And we say, Amen and Amen. Let it be so. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, you have given us a lot to think about. Wonderful portion of your word. Thank you for giving us the gift of time to spend sharing it together. Lord, the last thing we would want to do is to hear your word and not put it into practice. And so we ask you for your kindness in enabling us to put on this spiritual armor these ten things that make us fit for the fight, we would confess to you that we do often miss putting these pieces of armor on. And we suffer and others suffer and your church suffers because of that. So we're sorry. Help us, Lord. We want to be warriors that push your cause forward in this world. We want, to, we want to do it right. And we want to do it all for your glory. And we say, Amen. Let it be so. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.